What does it mean to love your neighbor? It may seem like a very basic principle of the Christian life, loving neighbor, and yet ever since an expert of the law posed the question, well, who is my neighbor? That command has been twisted and rejected. Who is my neighbor? In the 18th century, a French writer declared that the doctrine of loving one's neighbor is a fantasy that we owe to Christianity, not to nature. This writer's argument was that nature has given the weak to be slaves and went on to try to prove his point by saying that the natural world is run by power, not by love. The world, he said, is wolves eating lambs, lambs devoured by wolves, the strong killing the weak, the weak falling victim to the strong. The attitude that loving neighbor is just a farce and that ultimately it's power that, that matters. The German philosopher Nietzsche a century later echoed pretty much the, the same idea, arguing that the world is driven by power, not by love, and that love is really only one's desire, even instinctual sort of desire for something, someone, and so really equated love to not much difference than lust. Nietzsche believed that love of neighbor was just a desire to possess something that belonged to your neighbor. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus helps expose some of this evil thinking when it comes to neighbor. In Matthew 5, 43, he says, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. As Jesus describes it, that is the accepted norm of the day, to love neighbor and to hate enemy. And, and, and it has been that way for generations. We are here 2,000 years later, and, and it is still a guiding principle. Hate abounds. If you don't think like me, especially on matters that I value, I consider important, you don't value what I value, you, you hold beliefs that I disagree with, you support politicians that I reject, then it's not just whether or not we can get along, it actually may be the potential in my mind that I may hate you. That, that's the way the world looks at this. The heart of man is endlessly fickle and deceitful. We can easily embrace those who make us feel good and who agree with us and who believe like us and who look like us and share opinions like us while being sinfully partial against those who are different, who look different, who think different, who act different. But Jesus calls his followers to this radically different standard. In fact, in the very passage there in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount where he had just said this, if you read on Matthew 5, he says, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. There's, there's Jesus giving to us the two opposing standards. There is the world that says, I love you because you love me. We all get along. You're a brother or sister of mine, and so I'm good to you. And it's understandable, if not even admirable, that I would hate my enemies. It's the world's standard. God says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Because after all, what Jesus describes there is even those who are evil and who curse God still are benefactors of his, of his common grace. They still receive from him. The sun still rises on them. The rain still falls on them. They're still blessed by kindnesses of God. And so 
Jesus says, you imitate your father and you love your neighbor and you love even your enemy. So turn to Luke chapter 10. This is where we're going to be this morning in Luke chapter 10. It's, it's part of a larger section of Luke that really begins kind of the, the, the turning point in Luke. Luke chapter 9, verse 51, Jesus has been ministering in the northern region of Galilee. And Luke 9, 51 says he now turns and he begins to move toward Jerusalem. His sort of direction changes as he's now headed toward where he will ultimately suffer and so the brunt of the section that follows from Luke 9, 51 on through much of the heart of, of the Gospel of Luke is really about what it means to follow Jesus. It's about discipleship. This is, this is what you can anticipate. Jesus is heading toward his suffering, and those who follow him should understand the cost of discipleship. This is what it looks like to follow him. And we're going to see that from a familiar passage. It's a parable that Jesus gave in answer to a question from a Jewish religious, Jewish religious leader. So Luke 10, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. Let me pause there. Certain image comes to mind when we read the word lawyer. We make assumptions right away that this is a litigant, somebody who is in court, who argues cases. It's not really the way that Luke intends it here. This is a similar description to a term that the other gospel writers would call a scribe. Luke is really trying to emphasize the fact that this man is an expert in the Jewish law. He has studied the law of Moses. He consumes himself with understanding all pieces of it and how it should be applied, how it should be understood, how people should adhere to it. And so what he's doing here, Luke tells us, is he's now putting Jesus to the test. This expert in the law wants to see how well Jesus adheres to the law. Now, when we read the initial question, Jesus could have easily answered, believe in me and you will have eternal life. Trust in me. And, 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 and it sort of begs that he, he doesn't give that answer, but instead what Jesus does is he employs what's a sort of common rhetorical technique in the, in the Hebrew culture, essentially says to the expert in the law, I know what you're doing here. So what does the law say? You're, you know the law, so you tell me what the law of God says. And the lawyer actually rightly summarizes God's law in a way that Jesus himself often summarized God's law. You shall love, the, love God with your whole being. You should be fully committed to the Lord, in other words, and you should love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, so far, so good. So that prompts the lawyer's next question, and here's the turning point in the conversation. Verse 29, But the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? There is the pivotal point. You're right. Ah, it's exactly right. The lawyer wants to prevent any indictment against himself. He, he's watched Jesus interact with religious leaders. He understands this could be tricky. There could be landmines here. And so he already knows the answer to this question. This is the old legal philosophy that a lawyer doesn't ask a question that he doesn't already know the answer to. So when he says, who is my neighbor, 
he already understands what is the accepted normal answer to that question in that era by the rest of his culture. Commentator James Edwards puts it this way, in first century Judaism, as in the Old Testament, neighbor designated Israelites, including strangers who shared the land with them, but not Gentiles, not foreigners. It was Jews and those who had come and brought themselves under the, the Jewish umbrella. And, and so when he asks that question, the lawyer fully expects Jesus to vindicate him. Are you good to your fellow Jews? Do you treat your brothers and sisters well? Don't have regard for those who are outside of the family of Israel? Then you're fine. But Jesus gives this answer that the lawyer does not expect. Verse 30, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, the man was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. The standard for loving neighbor that the expert in Jewish law shared, that was the standard for the peers of his era, wasn't even close. He was wrong, and he was wrong for all the same reasons that people are wrong about this very same topic today. You, you engage with people in the world about love, and, and, and they think they know all about love. The world talks all about love. Love is, is, is important. They profess love for others. They click on the little heart next to your tweet or your text to say, I love what you just posted. Uh, movie plots, uh, songs. There's, there's just a, a love theme often, again and again, behind all of those. Some of our, our highest highs and lowest lows in life have to do with people that we love, experiences that we go through with them. But Jesus said to the lawyer what he said to us today. If you've, if you've narrowed this down to believe that loving neighbor is just loving those who already love you, then you've missed it. If your emphasis is on loving those who love you back, loving those who look like you, loving those who are the same ethnicity as you, loving those who like the things you like, if that's your guide, you have missed it completely. We who belong to Jesus Christ by his saving grace are to adopt a very different definition of neighbor. Even in a world filled with hate, in fact, even in a world filled sometimes with neighbors who are hateful, he still calls us to this different definition. And what he describes is a kind of love that doesn't come naturally. It's a, it's a kind of love that leaves us knowing that we desperately need the very presence of Jesus through his spirit to enable us to do. This love that Jesus illustrates in this parable is, is likely to be messy and costly 
It's likely to be thankless and lonely and unseen, and it may well even be very unnerving. I want to show you what I mean. Let's talk first just about the culture of the day. I think many of you know this already when you think of the Samaritans and the Jews, but let's just be sure we're all on the same page. The gospel writers, Luke wrote the gospel of Luke and he wrote the book of Acts. Luke emphasizes the Samaritans and Samaria far more than any of the other gospel writers. Mark does not mention Samaria or Samaritans. Matthew mentions them once. John mentions them once. Matthew is in the context of Jesus commissioning his 12 disciples, the first sending of disciples when their job is to go to the, the lost sheep of Israel. It's to go to the Jews and proclaim the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so that's Matthew 12. And there Jesus says, don't go to the Gentiles or to any town of the Samaritans. He's not forbidding that permanently. He's saying at this point, your message is to the Jews. There will be a time for that. And of course, John refers to the Samaritans in John chapter 4 when he speaks of the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. But Luke has this bigger picture in mind that ultimately he will unfold when you get to the book of Acts. And so he's, he's going to give us three different instances where he mentions Samaritans, three separate references. The first is in chapter 9. This is that point when Jesus sets his face to go south toward Jerusalem. You've got in your notes a little map, and if it's hard to see everything on that map, it's Galilee in the north, it's Judea in the south, and there's Samaria right between the two. And Jesus is in Galilee, and he's headed to Judea. Samaria, the region, got its name from what was the capital city of the northern kingdom. If you go back to your Old Testament history, the Jews get divided up into Israel and into Judah. And, and the problem with Israel that we see unfold over Israel's history is the kings are terrible. Every king of Israel is considered evil. The worship turns from Jerusalem to Mount Gerizim. They decide that the place of God's dwelling is no longer Jerusalem and that they are going to go to Mount Gerizim to worship, which is in disobedience to what God has set before them of the place where he tabernacles. And then they only accept the books of Moses. They do not accept the writings or the prophets or anything else from the Old Testament. And so um, there is this opposition from the beginning that ultimately, we know, leads to the exile of, of that nation of Israel. They, they face God's judgment first before Judah does. And the exile of Israel is done by the Assyrians. And the Assyrians' battle technique to make sure that enemies didn't regather against them was to take the people from one conquered nation and then the people of another conquered nation and then another one and sort of mix them all together and then put them in different places so that you couldn't get back together with your, your peers and you didn't share all the same language and the culture and it was harder to, to fight back. So the people of Samaria, by the centuries even before Jesus, were already then this mixed race of people, some who had repopulated back from after the Assyrian exile, some who were Jews, some who were not, but they are still this people who reject Jerusalem, who are still opposed to um, the, the, the things that the Jews understand to be the word of God. And so in Luke 9, Jesus shocks his disciples when he says, we're going to go to Galilee, and they assume, right, we're going to go around Samaria because that's what we're supposed to do. And Jesus says, no, we're, we're going through Samaria. And so Luke 9, 52, Jesus sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? 
but he turned and rebuked them and they went on to another village. Let, understand this, the historian Josephus tells us there were instances, scattered instances, but instances of violence between Samaritans and Jews from time to time. And so while we, we laugh a bit at James and John's reaction, it's not totally without explanation because they see that what the Samaritans are doing is ultimately rejecting God. Here is Jesus wanting to come through, and the reason they reject him, you're headed for Jerusalem. That's not the place of worship. We don't believe in that. And so James and John sort of, I think we can at least understand this thing, God should judge them. There should be fire that should come down and wipe them out. And Jesus says no. But, but Luke's point here is to say, here's your first encounter with the Samaritans, and they are rejecting Jesus. Jesus simply wants to come through, and they say no, we want no part of you. Second instance is the one we'll look at in Luke 10. Last one is in Luke chapter 17, and that's very simple. That's the one where Jesus heals 10 lepers, and nine of them go away, and one of them returns, and the one who returns to thank him happens to be a Samaritan. And so Luke 17, verse 17, Jesus says, were not 10 cleansed, where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. So, there, later on in Luke's gospel, is a, a, a Samaritan who comes in faith and yet is still recognized even by Jesus within the culture that this is still a, a foreigner. This is still one who is outside of the nation of Israel. So that, that's the cultural background. The, the, the point is simple. Jews and Samaritans hated one another. They despised one another. and They wanted no part of fellowship with one another. Jesus sets the parable on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, so that's down in Judea. It's about a 17-mile journey, almost entirely downhill from the high point of Jerusalem down to Jericho, which is below sea level, passes through some desert places, passes by caves in other spots along the road. And so long before Jesus, this road already has a reputation. This is not the place you go at night. This is the road on which robbers hang out in the caves and from time to time will attack passers-by and steal everything from them. And that's exactly what we see Jesus describe here. He's not making up some far-fetched story. Anybody listening to this would have realized that this was very possible exactly as he describes it. They come out, they attack the man, they jump him, they beat him mercilessly, they take everything he has and they leave him to die. This man is left on the road and must have no hope at this point. This is not a heavily traveled roadway. And then he hears someone. Whether or not he knows it's a Jewish priest, whether or not he's fully conscious at this point to know, we, we don't know entirely. Perhaps he heard someone and for a moment had hope that, that there would be help. And instead, that someone doesn't even come close. Passes by completely on the other side, just keeps right on going. A Levite comes. Levites assisted the priests. Probably in both of these instances, at least the way Luke describes, these are men who may well have been serving in Jerusalem in the worship there at the temple and are now returning home. And so now a Levite comes by, and the language Luke uses is slightly different when it says that he came to the place or arrived, you could say there. So it's possible that the Levite at least sort of pauses, came up to the spot where the man is, but clearly Jesus says he went to the other side of the road and he walked away quickly. First thing I want to suggest to you we observe here about the love of neighbor that, that Jesus was teaching is that it can be costly 
and messy. There's all kinds of conjecture about why the priest and the Levite did what they did. We, we don't know for sure because the text doesn't say. There's some who would say there was a fear that if indeed this guy's dead, well, then he's a corpse and ceremonial law. I can't really touch him. I'll become unclean. And so it's best if I just keep on moving. There was also Jewish wisdom in one of the apocryphal books, um, and, and, and book of, of Sirach, and you can, you can read this, that, that basically says before you help a person, you need to know if that person's good or bad. Um, and so what it says in there is do good to the devout, but do not help the sinner. Do good to the humble, but do not give to the ungodly. That is Jewish teaching, not biblical teaching, but, but there's the Jewish rabbis saying, if you're going to help a stranger, you better be careful because you don't want to help one who's bad. You only want to help good strangers. And so you need to know a little something about the person's character before you help them. And so if the priest and the Levite are thinking that way, they don't, they don't know this guy. He could be a bad guy for all they know. I would suggest that the simplest explanation for why they didn't help is probably the one that would still be common to you and I, and that's fear. The, the thought that, oh, this guy has been beaten and left for dead, and so there's a chance that there's more guys around here, and if I bend down and start to help this guy, I put myself in a really vulnerable position, and I've got no backup, I don't want to end up like him. I'm going to keep my head up, and I'm going to keep moving and get out of this area. After all, i got a home to get to. i got family that, that's waiting for me. i got, I got a place to be. I'm out of here. Often we struggle to love neighbor because it's uncomfortable because it's messy, because we're in a situation where the neighbor has a problem, and that's going to tax me in some way. It's going to cost me time. It's going to cost me emotional energy. It might even cost me money. I don't know, but then what if they don't really want my help? You know, my, my personal favorite, because I've thought this myself, is if I'm too proud to ask for help, I'll bet he is too. When I, I wrote that in my notes this week, and, and so yesterday afternoon, I went to Lidl, called my wife, I texted her, said, do we need anything? And she said, um, if they have a deck box on sale, cheap, pick it up. And so they did, decent price. Not a real heavy box, but you know, long, sort of awkward kind of box. And I, I didn't have the truck, I just had the car. And so I got out to the parking lot, and I can now tell you that the Lidl deck box does not fit in the backseat of a Toyota Corolla. <laughs> so I open the door, and I'm trying to lift it in, and I gotta go around to the other door, and I'm trying to pull it through, and I, all of that to get there and find out that it's about six, eight inches too long, and pull the whole thing back out, and open the trunk, and put the seats down, and all the while thinking to be prepared to say, no, I got it, I'm fine. When somebody comes along and says, sir, you look like you could use some help, Nah, I'm fine. I got it. I'll just keep looking like a fool here right in front of the store as I battle this box. But that's precisely the kind of attitude we have sometimes when it comes to helping other people. I, 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 I won't accept help. How's that if I just make a deal with you that I don't have to help you at the same time? And there's the priests and the Levites just going in the other direction. The guy is a mess. He's probably dying. And the attitude is, I got, I got family of my own. I got plans. Uh, it's going to be sundown. This is going to get complicated. Maybe somebody else will help them. You can just go on and on. Before we wag the accusing finger at the priest and the Levite, 
I think we should at least realize how easy it is for us to rationalize our way to the same sorts of conclusions and say, hmm, not me. All right, let's read on. Uh, again, verse 33. But a Samaritan, so as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, poured oil and wine on him, then set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, took care of him. Next day, he takes up two denarii, gave him to the innkeeper. Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. Second thing we observe about the love of neighbor that Jesus is describing here is it can often be lonely and thankless and unseen. One of the reasons the priest and the Levite could walk away, could scurry away and not care is because there was nobody watching them. There was no adoring worshipers. There was no assistants who were coming alongside wondering what their master might do in this instance. It was just them and the victim and nobody was watching. And, and, and ironically, we see this all the time in, in, in our own day when we watch this kind of stuff. And, and in a world where we feel like we're constantly being watched, like there's cameras everywhere, it's stunning how many times we see videos of somebody being victimized as bad or worse than the guy on the road to Jericho, and the crowd around is all getting their phones out so they can take video of it themselves to post. And nobody wants to help at that point. The Samaritan stops. If anybody could have passed by, this is the guy. He's out of his region. He's perhaps on business, is perhaps one explanation. No doubt he has reasons to get to Jericho too. And, and he's got to know, in Judea, on a road from Jerusalem to Jericho, the chances that this is another Samaritan are probably slim to none. In, in reality, this is probably a Jew who has been beaten like this. And so we already know that story. And, and, and how easy is it for him to say, not my country, not my people. I got better things to do. I'm out of here. Let some Jew take care of him, but not me. I don't owe him anything. It's interesting when Luke introduces the Samaritan in verse 33, we've, we've talked from time to time, word order in the Greek and the emphasis. And, and Luke puts Samaritan first. And so if you're going to literally go from the, the, the Greek, it says Samaritan, but a certain one. It, it's Luke's way of saying Samaritan, underline, but a certain one. So it's but a certain one, a, a Samaritan is the way we would read it. He doesn't do that with the priest and the Levite. The word order there is pretty similar to our English. Now by chance a priest, so likewise a Levite. It, it, is, it is Luke's way of saying Whoa, imagine this, a Samaritan. Surely by the time the Samaritan arrives, the victim's further along, maybe closer to death, maybe barely conscious. And so his act of service is, is not gonna be recognized. Nobody knows what this guy's gonna do on this road. Nobody in Judea is going to put up a headline that says, Samaritan saves this victim on the road. No, he's not going to be noted as the hero of the month. Nobody's going to regard this guy. Nobody's there to watch. It's, it's not even clear from the story if there's ever even going to be an opportunity for the victim to thank him. We, we don't know what, how that ever proceeds, but whether the victim even knows who he is and ever gets a chance to say, thanks for saving my life. Samaritan's alone. No help, no one to watch his back. Humanly speaking, zero to gain. If you're the innkeeper and he brings you this guy on the, the back of his donkey, 
you, you gotta be thinking at this point, either this is admirable or it's crazy. Why would he do this? And, and in fact, in verse 35, when the Samaritan says, I will pay you when I come back, the grammatical emphasis is on the pronoun, I. In other words, it, the emphasis is on, it doesn't matter what expenses this guy incurs, he's not responsible for them, I will pay them, and I will be back for that. So here's, here's now the, the thought for you and I. How often do we expect appreciation when we love our neighbor? How often is it at least a, a side motive that I, I hope they recognize this, right? I hope they at least notice that if they don't say thank you, I'm gonna be a little salty. I, I know I'm supposed to love my neighbor, but when I do, they should love me back, right? We, we don't want to say that, and yet that's, that, that's still going on. It, it's still something we wrestle with. Jesus' example offers none of the above. In fact, the only motive Jesus gives is compassion. The guy comes, and he sees this guy who is bloody and beaten, and he sees him as a human being in need and says, I need to help him. I need to show, show mercy to him. He, he, he needs care, and he cannot look away or walk away. Story ends, verse 36, Jesus saying to the lawyer, okay, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer says, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. Love of neighbor can be costly and messy and thankless and unseen and lonely. And, and I would suggest to you last, it can be unnerving. This poor lawyer has gone into this, sure that he could handle this situation, sure that he knew the answers. And probably as Jesus is telling the story to him, and he hears priest, no. Levite, no. If you're the lawyer at that point, you're thinking, okay, I, I know where we're going with this. He's going to then say, and then along came a humble, ordinary Jew who was not a rabbi, who was not anything in the religious, not, not a cleric of any kind, and so that it becomes a story about pious religious leaders not doing the right thing and instead ordinary Jews doing the right thing. And Jesus doesn't use an ordinary Jew to teach this. Instead, Jesus shocks the Samaritan. A Samaritan, it shocks the lawyer, I should say. A Samaritan. The fact that it shocked him, I, I would suggest to you the tell in that is in his answer when Jesus says, which of the three? And his answer is not what Jesus had just said, the Samaritan. Instead, he answers, well, the one who showed mercy. I, I, I understand we're probably reading a little bit into this, but I would suggest to you that even here, the lingering bitterness of ethnic hatred stands in that he's not even gonna bring himself to say, all right, it was the Samaritan who did the right thing. Even then, he gives a right description and says, well, it was the one who showed mercy. Jesus went and completely redefined neighbor to this guy. And he is struggling at this point because these, these are people I have been taught to hate. Friends, this can still be unsettling for us today. We can carry around hate and prejudice. Satan loves to stir division. He loves to get us to, to find differences with one another and, and find ways that we can disagree with one another and pit us against each other. Satan roots for oppression. He'd love for Christ's church to look just like the world that says power over love. 
Power is what matters. He'd love for the church to sound just like the law expert of Luke chapter 10. You don't mean that guy, do you? That's neighbor? Love people who belong in my neighborhood? Okay, look like me? Sure. Meet my litmus test? Sure. Jesus comes and says, I want to I smash that idol. If, if that's your attitude about this, this, this story is here to crush it because Jesus is teaching the very kind of peace and harmony and unity that the world so often proclaims that it wants and yet is so often divided about. It still seems impossible. And friends, here's where if you, if you remove this story from its larger context, if you just sort of take it out of Luke, you can wrongly treat this story as just sort of a fable. A good story with a good moral imperative. Be a good person. Be nice. Be kind. You've got that ending, and, and, and this is the part that I think, as I kept pondering it this week, you got Jesus at the end saying, you go and do likewise. You've got a command there that says, now go do this. If only it were that simple. Haters, go and do likewise. Middle East, go and do likewise. Nations where there is oppression of, eth of ethnic groups, go and do likewise. That covers everything, right? Just go and do likewise. The, the, the problem here, though, is this whole dialogue didn't start on the basis of what does it mean to love neighbor? This all started with what question? How do I inherit eternal life? which now makes it even a little bit more challenging when you get to the end and Jesus says, you go and do likewise. And, and, and I would suggest to you that whether the lawyer went and did likewise, we, we won't know on, on this side of eternity. Maybe, maybe we'll, we'll, we'll get to meet him in heaven, Lord willing. But, but I would suggest to you that the lawyer's path at that point is in one of two directions. It's either some form of he tries he fails, he concludes, no, this is the way I was born, this is how I was brought up, I hate these people, why am I doing this? This is ridiculous, and he goes back to the way he was. Or the other path is at some point, somewhere down the road that the gospel writers didn't give us, he comes back to Jesus Christ and says, I can't do it, I need help. I, I must need to be saved because I can't do what you told me to do. You said go and do likewise. And I am, I am helpless at this. Because in reality, there's only one perfect expert in the law. There's only one who fulfilled the law, who loved his father and obeyed his father completely, who loved others perfectly. We sometimes call this the parable of the good Samaritan, all the while knowing that even inherently the Samaritan wasn't good by nature. He still had his sin and, and, and whatever in his life. Only Jesus is good. Jesus is the perfect son of God. And that's why we proclaim the gospel, that, that the perfect son of God came and took on himself our, our hatred, our, our despising, our belittling of others, our harming of others, our looking the other way at sufferers, our taking advantage of others. That's why he came and took that sin on himself so that the perfect one could die in our place and take the judgment of God in order to offer to us forgiveness and life. Jesus Christ died and rose so that hateful, divided sinners could be forgiven by admitting that we are sinners and that we are desperately in need 
of Jesus Christ and trusting in him. After his death and resurrection, Jesus Christ appears to his disciples, gives them some further instruction and encouragement because he is going away. And his final words to them are recorded by Luke in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Right before he ascends into heaven, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and where? Samaria. Samaria. There it is. And to the ends of the earth. There was only one way for Jews to truly love Samaritans and only one way for Samaritans to truly love Jews. There's only one way still today that people of different ethnicities, people of different lots in life can actually be unified into a people as one. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I will bestow, he says, power on you and you will go to Samaria and you will see brothers and sisters in Christ. You want some good reading this afternoon, just take a few minutes and go to Acts chapter eight and, and Philip goes to these Samaritan villages and he proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ, presumably villages just like the one that told Jesus, no, we don't want you. And he goes and proclaims and they become brothers and sisters in Christ to the point that ultimately Peter has to go up there to say, are you sure? Is, is it really, are they believing the same gospel? And when Peter comes, then the same Holy Spirit poured out on the Jews, Jewish believers at Pentecost now is poured out on the Samaritans and they are saved as brothers and sisters. It's a glorious picture and that's ultimately where Luke is taking us. And it's a picture that was established in eternity past, Ephesians 1 tells us, that this gospel ordained by God before the foundation of the earth was God redeeming sinners through the blood of Jesus Christ and the riches of his grace. And Ephesians 1 goes on to say it was God's purpose set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. For everyone who dreams of a humanity that is joined together in peace and genuine unity. The creator has already made a plan for that and it is through Jesus Christ. It is on the basis of the cross and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and all who turn to Jesus are forgiven and joined in this beautiful community. In Christ alone, we are empowered to love neighbor as self. And, and I'll just end we started this morning, Pastor Stewart started this morning back in Revelation chapter five, and I'm gonna go just a couple chapters later in Revelation seven, where it is this picture one day in heaven of we who trust in Jesus Christ joining with this great multitude from, it says, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, and we are standing before the throne of the Lamb, giving glory to our Savior, Jesus Christ, as one people, amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your death and resurrection. Lord, it is only on account of your shed blood that there is hope for what is so elusive otherwise. Lord, we, we would be standing there just like that lawyer, confused, struggling, not feeling vindicated, helpless, about how to go forward from that point to suddenly change everything I've thought or believed. And Lord, we thank you that Jesus Christ, by his sacrifice on the cross, shed his blood so that now 
a people can be united, not only to him, but to one another forevermore. Thank you for the, the picture of people from different languages and tribes, ethnicities, of, of, of nations around the throne of the Lamb, giving worship and honor and glory to the one who gave himself in our place. Lord, would you help us in this area where we are convicted this morning of times that we have avoided the mess, times that we have been cranky because we didn't get appreciated, times when we have been unsettled by someone that we feel convicted we should help. Lord, we pray for your spirit to help us, to convict us, to exhort us to be people who love neighbor and who define neighbor in the same way that Jesus did for this expert in the law? Would you help us as a church to have a vision that we live out for, continuing to minister to our community and to demonstrate this love? And would you help us as a body of believers to have a, a kind of unity of drawing together of love for one another that when people encounter us, they engage our church in some way, they visit in some way, they see something that is only explained on the basis of Jesus Christ and his finished work. Lord, I pray for anyone here who is not trusting in Jesus Christ alone for forgiveness, for salvation. Lord, today, please, we pray, open their eyes to embrace Jesus for who he is and what he has done and to call him Savior and Lord. And Lord, in all of these things, we pray that we would strive to glorify you and that you would empower us to do so. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.